this show is distributed by SoundCloud. Welcome. Welcome to episode 172 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we're talking to Baron Schwartz, who's chief performance architect at Bacona. Hey, Baron, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. So, so Baron, um, I'm trying to figure out how we made contact. I, I think you emailed us because someone suggested that uh, you be on the show. Is that right? Yeah, somebody tipped me off to the show and said that you guys were looking for interviewers, and I went to your site and listened to one of the previous interviews and thought, well, that sounds like a fun opportunity. So you weren't put off by our hideous design? <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I'm not exactly a design geek. I like good design, but if you ever see something that I design, it's generally yes. going to have rectangles around it. <laughs> right. Yeah, we have an ongoing debate about the importance and whether the design or lack of professionalism of the design is, uh, is limiting our guest selection. So, you know, I'll send an email to a potential guest and say, hey, you know, we'd like to have you on the show. And if I, when I never hear anything back from them, I'm like, oh, no, they took a look at the site. We don't have any proof. We just kind of say, oh, it's the design. Oh. <laughs> that's, the kind of, yeah. that's the thing that we say. Well, so if you we, upgrade it, make sure that you can still get the latest episodes. Somebody upgraded a website that I use a lot recently, and now I can't get to the latest thing anymore, which I need to do daily. Oh, that's <laughs> annoying. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to make a step backwards there. So you are a big shot in the MySQL world. <laughs> Not that you, you would say, say that so. about yourself, I'm That's sure. I'm no, I'll let you guys it. <laughs> I think we'll title the show MySQL Big Shot. <laughs> but um, yeah, you are the chief, uh, I guess, what's it, performance architect? Chief performance architect, yeah. At Percona. I made that up, by the way. Oh, did you? Uh, okay. Yeah, I've been sort of the executive that wears all hats at Percona since uh, early days that I joined Percona. And I, I just kind of moved through one title after another until I had way too many jobs to do. And we started hiring people to do things instead. We hired an actual salesperson. We hired actual administrative and contract negotiation people. We hired uh, an actual marketing person and an actual vice president of consulting. But I'm still in the executive team, so I had to have an executive sounding title. So does that mean that chief performance architect is the thing that you would like to do most? It's kind of what you have the most fun at. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, I've done a lot of different things and I can be moderately successful at some of them. And that's fine and it's fun and I don't mind doing that, especially when you're at a bootstrapped growing company. You have to do kind of everything, right? You've got to take the trash out. We're all virtual, by the way, so I'm only taking my own trash out. <laughs> but yeah, you know, ultimately I wanted to get back to um, the things that I love the most are architecting and designing good quality software, solving hard problems and systems, um, engineering things that make hard tasks easy for users, those kinds of things, and doing uh, a lot of research and a lot of writing. I love to write. So why don't we uh, get started by having you just explain what Percona is and how you uh, got involved with them. Percona is founded by a couple of people who left MySQL one of them, Peter Zaitsev, was the leader of the high-performance group within MySQL. And the other, Vadim Tchenko, is a uh, former database engineer. Um, sorry, I just said that wrong. A benchmark engineer 
inside of MySQL. And they left in 2006 and formed Percona. Initially, it was just called High Performance, uh, the, uh, the MySQL Performance Blog. And the name Percona came a couple of months later, something like that, August 2006. And uh, they started doing consulting. I kind of knew of them, didn't know them yet. And in 2008, I uh, joined after writing the High Performance MySQL book with them. So in between there, we had kind of gotten to know each other, maybe met each other at conferences a couple of times, started spending a lot of time on Skype together when we wrote the book. And um, after writing the book, I decided, you know, there's just more outside this world of one company. There's a huge diversity of challenges and interesting opportunities and problems to solve. And I'm never going to get that in one company. And I was kind of hungering for that at the time. So I joined them. Now, what Percona does, answer things in reverse order, is services and support and engineering for the MySQL database. So we're the largest independent third party outside of Oracle who owns MySQL now. There are a few other third party vendors of services and support for MySQL. And of course, there's lots of kind of um, add-on or auxiliary solutions that are not MySQL themselves, but those who provide the same services and support that, that you can get from MySQL, but through an alternative vendor would include us first and foremost. There's also SkySQL, and um, there's a group called Pythian, and uh, a number of smaller groups, including lots of one-man shops, sometimes mm-hmm. one-woman shops. So we're one of the biggest and oldest of the independent MySQL solutions providers. Jason, I have a quick question. When, when um, I'm, I'm, I'm asking Jason because sometimes I have to ask his permission to ask a question. Um, so, <laughs> so Baron, when, what, what I did, not quite familiar. Did you were you working for MySQL or were you just a core committer? Um, how at that point? I was actually neither. <laughs> uh, I was working for an internet search marketing company called the Rim Coffin Group, and we used MySQL heavily. I started going to conferences, and that's where I, I met everybody. There isn't really a a title core committer in the MySQL community the way that there is in Postgres. I have made some source code changes that have one way or another been incorporated into various versions of MySQL or or third-party versions of MySQL, but I haven't really worked on the core code of MySQL itself as much as I've worked on tools that make it easier to interact with MySQL. So, well, first of all, Justin, I love it that you feel like you have to ask me to ask your questions. So let's just keep going with that. <laughs> I'll be in charge of all your questions. <laughs> um, okay, so now Percona is a, is a completely virtual sort of uh, consulting training um, company. And does that mean you don't have a headquarters anywhere? I mean, everybody, including the CEO, is working out of their home? Everybody works out of their home. We do have two headquarters, if you want to look at it that way. One of them is where we're legally incorporated and where you send legal documents to. And that's near where our finance administrator lives in, in the Washington state area. Now, is that just like a P.O. box or an attorney's office or something? Or is that actual like a, a door with Percona on it? I don't think there's a door with Percona on it. I've never <laughs> been there, to tell you the truth. That's really cool, though, actually, you know, because people talk about these virtual companies, but this is a successful, large-scale virtual company. It's not just, you know, a three-person virtual company. That's right, yeah. And how how many? We're over 60 people at this point. Wow. Wow, that is large. Um, And 
the way you got involved in the, with with um, the, the founders was through the writing of, I guess, the third edition of my sequel, High Performance My Sequel for O'Reilly. Is that correct? Second edition. Second, oh, second edition, edition came okay. out in April of 2008. Third edition is heading towards the printing presses right now. Literally. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. And, and, and the first edition was written by uh, what Jeremy Zwadney, who's the, the uh, sequel guru over at uh, Craigslist, right? Yeah, yeah. He was with Yahoo at the time. And, and, and he's at Craigslist now. You know, why, yeah, uh, no, why, why did he not continue to write? I mean, why did it become sort of this multi-person effort um, going forward? You know, I'm, I've never asked him why he didn't want to write the second edition. But the way the contract was structured, the authors of the first edition get first dibs at writing the next edition if they want to. And I, th- I would suspect that, you know, it was a lot of work. And um, he had probably other priorities in his life at the time because he was, I remember there was a period in his life where he was doing a lot of travel and writing a book is a non-trivial amount of work. So that would be my guess, but you know, I'm, I'm totally putting words in his mouth. Sure. Sure. Well, um, well, how did you get involved in, in writing the book? Was did someone from O'Reilly contact you directly or, or what? I mean, cause O'Reilly obviously is a, is, you know, sort of the premier technology um, publisher. So to get do a book with them seems like a, a pretty big deal. I was pretty psyched about it. Peter had been familiar with my blogging and uh, Peter and Vadim had been recruited by O'Reilly as authors for the second edition. They were really looking for a second edition and they needed to find authors for it, I guess, because Jeremy and Derek from the first edition had said no. Okay. And um, Peter and Vadim said yes, but then they probably kind of got an, oh no, what if I agreed to sort of a feeling. Mm-hmm. So, because both of them at that point, um, and in fact, when I joined Percona, I was the first native English speaker. So both of them are, uh, Peter's Russian and Vadim is Ukrainian. And at that point, I, I think their English was more, it, it was quite difficult. So, you know, writing a book in English is a pretty daunting task if you're not a native English speaker. And editing someone else's English that's non-native is surprisingly more work than you think it is. Yeah, you tell tell telling me editing Justin is a nightmare. I, mean, I know. I I can tell you <laughs> probably have to do that all the time. Thanks so much. <laughs> so um, so you got pulled into this book. I mean, when you get pulled in to do as part of a team, do you get any kind of advance, or is it just sort of a, a royalties thing, or how does that work? It there's some flexibility. So for the second edition, I asked for advances on royalties. And basically what that means is you don't earn any royalties until your royalty payments have paid back the advance. Sure. And the, the, I can tell you the details of the contract if you want. You know, I'm not sure. I'm not we sure. like details here. Well, yeah, I mean, one thing I'm just curious, like when you first got approached to you th- uh, from O'Reilly, are you thinking, okay, this is, are you more interested in the fact that it's financially beneficial or more interested in the prestige and it, there isn't really much finance um, kind of pull to it? I was convinced that I would make hundreds of dollars from this book. <laughs> and it has turned out to be much better financially than I thought it would. The book has sold tens of thousands of copies. I don't think anybody thought that would happen. I don't know what the first edition has sold, but the second edition has sold quite well. So it sounds like the royalties on a book like this might turn out to be like a week or two of consulting work for you. Yeah. Tops. Yeah, it's it's certainly, you know, you're not going to get rich from the royalties, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's... It's a nice take my wife out to dinner every now and then or something like that. But it brings work your way, right? Through- it does. Yeah. I mean, it certainly has. I, I wasn't really looking for prestige. I was not personally seeking the spotlight. 
But there's nothing like being the first author on the cover of the book that kind of becomes the reference. It's it people regard it as the authoritative book on MySQL that you really need to have, not just if you're looking for high performance, but for lots of other topics as well. Now, how did you get to be the first um, the first author? Was it just because you spoke English the best, or you wrote more words, or how, or how does that work? I did most of the work. So there, if you look in the second edition, there's a number of authors there. And some of them are there because it's a carryover from the first edition. And some of them are there because, you know, we had kind of had a large team working on stuff. And I thought I was going to be kind of helping out a little bit here and there. But after a little bit of work on actually writing the book, it became clear that I was really the person who could actually get it done. And I'm not saying that in a... Uh, pejorative way, but just that Peter and Vadim, they were, you know, technically brilliant and we could have conversations where I could get a lot out of it, but writing was too difficult for them. And Aryan ended up being uh, a lot distracted with some other things. So it really did end up being about 85% of my writing. And, you know, when that became clear, I went back to O'Reilly and said, I think I deserve a bigger share of the royalties. And in fact, initially I wasn't even going to be listed as an author. That was sort of a glorified editor. Hey, Jason, what, what answer were you expecting? Something like, we played a ping pong league and whoever won. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> I really had no idea. I'm like, who gets to be the first author, top billing, you know, or maybe the, you're the biggest name. You know, like in movies, it's not who has the most screen time, but is the biggest name. And, or, or maybe who made contact with O'Reilly and said, all right, well, I'll, I'll wrangle some other, you know, MySQL gurus and, and we'll get a team together for you. And so the person who sort of did the wrangling and sort of is more of the editor gets to be the lead author. I mean, I, I really have no idea. So that's, that's interesting. Apologies for being so flippant. Yeah, Justin, yeah. Next, time, next time you need to submit your question to me beforehand and we won't write. Right. <laughs> I suspect that it can be a very political game of wrangling in some books that have multiple authors. Between us, you know, it, it, there was never any kind of doubt that I was the one who was doing the majority of the writing. And so there was no animosity or anything besides we're friends. So, right. Yeah, but, so before so we finish up the talk in the book, because I want to get into Percona next, but uh, I just want to ask you, you know, how hard was it to write a book like this? I mean, you hear authors, I mean, the general, I, I don't know, sort of complaint you hear is that I had no idea it was going to be as painful as it was and as much work as it was, and I'm never going to do it again. Did it turn out to be that hard or, or was it uh, about what you expected? It was brutally hard work. There's no glossing over that. It was well worth it. Um, and it was much more work than I thought it would be, in part because, as I mentioned, you know, initially I was just going to be kind of a glorified editor and contribute an appendix or two. But yeah, I spent um, over a thousand hours on it over the course of about a year or so. And if you think about that in terms of a work, a, a typical work week, the typical United States 40 hour work week, you count on somebody working 2,000 hours in a year. So that's like six months of work full time. Now, I would soften that by saying that I was extremely inefficient. And I learned that when I started writing the third edition. For the third edition, it was well past time for us to update the material. It was, you know, it was kind of roll your eyes and groan, oh, this is so outdated. And yet the second edition was was selling very well. And O'Reilly's take on it was, as long as people are still buying it, let's not mess with a good thing. And I was perfectly fine with that until it got to the point where everything was so out of date that it was just kind of painful. 
Well, yeah, I would imagine yeah. that could cause you problems in your consulting practice. So you keep getting people contacting you and they have all these misconceptions and bad information. You're like, yeah, hey, okay, that was old. You got to ignore that. This is the new stuff, right? I mean, yeah, that's and that, that happens you know, the day after somebody publishes a book too. Okay, but right. it was, it was, it had gotten beyond ridiculous. So I went to O'Reilly and said, look, I think we can do this as something less than an epic project. Let's update it. Let's refresh it. But let's not rewrite it completely like we did with the second edition, because I, I rewrote almost everything in the second edition, except for one of the chapters on security. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a massive overhaul. It was a completely new book coming out the other end. It was also much larger. And I, t I promised O'Reilly that it would be lightweight. They wouldn't need to do a whole lot editing. Um, we wouldn't increase the page count very much. And my whole point in that was that I didn't want to spend all that much time on it either because I had to convince my wife to buy into this too. <laughs> right. So I, I blocked off an hour in the morning um, from 6.30 to 7.30 a.m. and started outlining and started writing and completely drew up a schedule, got O'Reilly to agree to that, um, went through this whole process. And when I started writing, I discovered, wow, I'm way ahead of schedule. So I completely rewrote the book again, and uh, to my chagrin, when I when O'Reilly started actually uh, laying it out in uh, the final print format, we increased the page count a whole bunch. And I was I know O'Reilly didn't want that because they don't want to. It's much more expensive to proofread and copy edit and index and all that kind of stuff. You're like, quit so, generating content. This is making exactly. work for me. <laughs> Thank you, O'Reilly, for not making me cut that back. But so, in any case, uh, okay. you know, I ended up doing it in a couple of hundred hours instead of a thousand. And that's well, because I, I had just learned how to outline and how to plan ahead. And I, I realized that what I did in the second edition wasn't writing. It was rewriting. Um, as, as you're building a book like this, are you learning as well as teaching? Yes, very much so. There was a lot of research that went into both editions of the book. And there are constantly topics where you want to write about the details and you need to go looking in manuals and reference documentation and somebody has blogged on it and you've kept a note on that blog and then you saw some customer that had some issues with it and so you go and review the issue and read all the emails and that and then you fire up a whole bunch of machines and beat on them and see what they do. And, you know, so there is a tremendous amount of research that goes into it and a, a lot of learning. Writing a book makes you much better in your subject. It, it sounds to me like it makes you vet all of these sort of technical superstitions you have, because I think at least as a develop for myself, as when I'm developing, I mean, I don't have time to go down and, 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 and pin things down to know absolutely was this the problem or not. If it gets wor if it's working, I think I understand why I'm moving on. But what happens is I get this, I get this sort of huge list of things that I think are true or not true, but I, I don't know for sure. So it's sort of like a superstition, but when you are actually going to write it down and say, this is the truth people, and it's going to be in a book, you got to make sure that that's, yeah, your reputation's behind it, and whether you care about that or not, <laughs> you know, right. you've got to you've got to make sure that you're giving people accurate information. And there is an extensive review process that most books go through. For this third edition, uh, the review process was largely with people here at Percona. We didn't really get technical reviewers and go through the entire process. That was part of the bargain that I made with O'Reilly too, because the uh, the technical review process in the second edition was very laborious, and it typically is in almost every book. But I, I promised them that I would get people internally to Percona to do fact-checking and things like that. Well, because you got your own in-house stable of experts, so you can make that really efficient, right? 
Yep. I figured between me and Peter and Vadim and then other people looking at specific sections, we had enough eyeballs on it. Right, right. Okay, so why don't we move into uh, per, um, to Percona itself? Um, now, you got involved in, 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 as, a, as this sort of growing virtual consulting practice, but at some point, I, I, you decided to build the extra DB engine, and I'd like to hear. I'd like to hear your sort of description of what that is, how it got started. You know, you know everything about it that's interesting, I guess, and we'll just interrupt along the way. Sure. So Percona's evolution started out as performance consulting, and it wasn't even really specifically dedicated to MySQL. In the beginning, when you hang up a shingle, you've just got to do whatever people will pay you to do. These days, we have a large enough company that we need to say, hey, our mission is squarely on MySQL. But in the, in the early days, we were doing consulting and remote administration and remote um, work for people of all sorts of different types. And we ran into a lot of different performance problems in particular. And some of those you could solve with MySQL just by changing things, changing the way things are done, changing configuration, changing table structures, whatever it is. Some of them you couldn't figure out whether they could be, could be solved in MySQL or not because there wasn't enough instrumentation to allow you to measure how the server was doing things. So the first changes that we made to MySQL source code were not actually to improve performance, but to improve measurability. And with those changes, we were able to solve a whole new class of problems because we could measure what needed to be done. Um, but we also found a, a number of problems that couldn't be solved by changing your SQL or changing your table structure or something like that. They were fundamental to the database engine and needed to be done inside of the server. And that's when we started getting into the internals of InnoDB because that's where most of the big bottlenecks were at that point. InnoDB okay. is the engine inside of MySQL. It, it's okay, it's so, the most important one. Okay, so let me just interrupt you uh, real quick. So, um, yeah, first of all, the the two the default engine I think for MySQL that will yeah it's what what's what will be created if you don't specify is MySAM, but InnoDB is the more sophisticated version that allows things like um, foreign keys and, um, I, I don't know, like uh, it's more transactions. asset transactions and things like yeah, that. My Sam exactly. So could you, I don't know, before we go on and, and talk about the development of ExtraDB, could you maybe give your view of the difference between the two engines and under what circumstance, if any, someone might still want to use MySAM. MySAM is actually not the default anymore in the latest release of MySQL. They finally changed it. Okay. When Oracle bought InnoDB and then bought MySQL, and now they're both owned by the same parent company, there's no sort of political reason not to have InnoDB as the default engine anymore. So in the most re recent release, they went ahead and made it the default. So MySAM is a historical uh, database engine that was the original storage format that MySQL was built with since way back when. And um, it's actually the successor to something called ISAM, which is, stands for Indexed Sequential Access Method. And it's pretty much flat files with indexes. Um, there's no transactionality. There's no crash resilience. There's no automatic recovery. Um, there is table-level locking, so there's no concurrency on a table. You can have multiple things reading from a table at once, but the moment that somebody wants to change the data to ensure that everybody sees consistent data, there's an exclusive lock, so readers block writers. Well, that's why back, at least back in the day, I mean, I'm, I guess this has probably changed now and you'll get more into this, but 
if you were going to be a read heavy um, if a read heavy table, you would just use my ISAM because at least in earlier versions, maybe this is just a technical superstition. NODB was sort of slow for reads, but if you were going to do something was take a lot of updating or inserts, you would do NODB. Is that right? Yeah, historically, that was the way people viewed it. Now, it's always been the case that NODB has particular access patterns where it is much faster than my ISAM. And that's due to the way that things are structured, especially the data storage on disk, the layout on disk. And um, it particularly plays in with sequential versus random disk access because sequential access is nice and fast and random access is very slow. Um, But yeah, that was kind of, that was the old uh, kind of characterization of the difference between the two engines was that you could use my ISM for something that was read heavy. In reality, when you get heavy enough, whether let's say that 99.9% of your queries are reads. If you still get enough traffic, the occasional write will cause serious pileups. So there's, you really need to have an engine that supports reads and writes concurrently. And that's what NODB does, among many other things. So would you recommend anyone use my ISAM at all? Um, or is that just a complete, uh, that's just historical... Uh, it's just a historical vestige of historical significance, and is, please ignore. No, I think there are still cases. In fact, one of our consultants, Eve Trudeau, recently found a case where it was the right answer. But I would say as time has passed, it is diminishing in importance. It used to be that 95% of people would use it, but really only 5% should. And I would say that that has decreased now to maybe three percent of people should be using it or or you should use it in three percent of cases and you have to really know what the specific shortcomings are that you're trying to solve um, and what the shortcomings of my ISAM are that you don't care about for example it's not great for large volumes of data because if you have a crash when you have a crash right your server is going to crash someday you're going to have to repair those tables and repair is an extremely laborious process with my ISAM so you know, you, you don't necessarily want to use it for really large tables. You don't want to use it for things that have any active um, concurrent reads and writes. So and there's this whole set of other things that you don't necessarily want to use it for. And that usually eliminates most cases. Um, the other kind of angle to that is, does it have any properties that the alternatives don't have? And, it, you know, it's a deal breaker for using the alternatives. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes uh, full-text search, for example, is one of them. It's the only storage engine in, my, in MySQL that supports full-text search operations. So if you really have to have that in the server itself, then you would. Uh, my ISAM was your only choice. Now, the interesting thing is that in the upcoming MySQL 5.6 release, full-text search is built into InnoDB. So that's kind of, you know, check that checkbox off. But on the other hand, my ISAM supports geospatial search, albeit badly. But it's, it's the only storage engine in MySQL that does. So if you have to have that inside of the server, then you still have to have my ISAM. So there is some, you know, it, it's not as though nobody should ever be using it. You should just make sure that you're qualified to, make sure that you qualify your application for it. Right, right. So then why don't you tell us a little bit about ExtraDB and, and, and what it is exactly? It grew from what we used to call our patches which were, unsurprisingly, a series of patches. Mm -hmm. So the first patches were to make things more measurable, and that was actually not in in what would become ExtraDB. That was in the upper layers of the server, dealing with logging queries. 
But as those uh, query logging patches became more sophisticated and we gained more insight into which specific things inside MySQL had to be fixed with patches, we started to realize that we needed to change the NODB storage engine itself. That's where the bottlenecks were in some cases. And it became increasingly common as hardware got more powerful and um, some of the old outdated assumptions that were built into NODB became less and less true. You know, we were not running on a laptop with a single hard drive and a single CPU anymore. We were running on, at the time, what was a powerful server might have had, let's say, eight CPUs and a handful of disks. And uh, NODB just wasn't able to scale on that kind of hardware, which seems kind of laughable now because that's, I mean, your iPad has more power than that now, right? Right. But, um, But that's kind of where things went. And we started to slowly change some of the some of the low-hanging fruit inside of NODB. At that time, Oracle owned NODB and MySQL owned MySQL, and there was a lawyer... A, a, lawyers formed a barricade between the two. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, NODB was apparently stagnant. Um, it seemed like NODB was just kind of going nowhere and there was no good answer about what to do with you know, creating an alternative or maybe improving it or anything at the time. And so nobody was doing anything, so we started to and released it as patches. We were initially just solving specific customer pain points. We never did anything just for the fun of it. We always did it because somebody needed it. And um, eventually, we started not only releasing the patches, but we realized that a lot of people probably were interested in the the entire software compiled. And applying patches to things and compiling yourself is no fun. And we were already compiling things for our customers. So why not just put that up and let people download it? And why not create a Yum repository and a Debian repository? So we did that. And then we realized we're probably staring a lawsuit in the face if we don't stop calling it MySQL and InnoDB. So we changed InnoDB's name to ExtraDB. And then we changed MySQL's name to Percona Server because trademarks are supposed to guarantee that you're getting what you think you're getting. And if we label it MySQL, but it's not, then that's not a good thing. So that's why we we have our own names for it now. Now, how how did the licensing work? So your 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 patches are on the NODB engine, which is owned by Oracle, but then you're distributing it. Um, these patches are, I guess, you're compiling it into the source of the NODB. I mean, is that? I mean, what's the IP situation there? So NODB and MySQL are both GPL licensed. So okay. as long as we GPL license the result or um, or something compatible with that, we're golden. We license our patches under BSD, but we're not actually distributing patches anymore. So okay, so extra DB is a, okay. So extra DB and Percona Server are both GPL yeah. uh, software. So anybody can download this and run this, run these, um, but run both extra DB and or Percona Server on their web host for free. Yeah, although it's not an and or, it's and because okay. extra DB is a core replacement for InnoDB and it's compiled in. So you can't okay. run ExtraDB without, you, you can't run it separately from Percona Server. And that's why these days we don't talk about ExtraDB so much as we talk about Percona Server and sometimes we tack on with ExtraDB at the end. If I was to um, use Percona and put it on my server and just swap out MySQL and InnoDB, without doing anything, do I just get performance improvements? In most cases, yes. There are specific cases where you might not see any difference, but 
in, in generally, yes, um, you'll get faster performance and more consistent performance is just one of the major areas where we focus. A lot of times you'll see a benchmark that just has a single number. You know, this one was, it's, it's bars on a graph. This one is that tall and the other one is taller. And that's not enough. If you actually look at running a benchmark for a realistic amount of time, let's say at least an hour, benchmarks really have to have some warm-up period and then they have to run for some period of time. If you just aggregate things into average queries per second or what have you, it's very misleading. You need to wait until the server is warmed up, which is indicative of how it's going to run over the long term, because obviously most of the time people are running servers for a long time. And then you need to look at the throughput over time. So you can do this very simply with a time series plot and make sure that your throughput is not only high, but consistently high, because if it notches down every now and then, then your throughput is really only as usable as the lowest point of those notches. And if you look at some of the benchmarks, like right now, if you go to mysqlperformanceblog.com and look on the front page or, or click on the benchmark category, you'll see some recent benchmarks that Vadim has done that show what we've been demonstrating for years, that without the performance enhancements and the, the um, consistency enhancements that we've built into MySQL, if you try and load the server down real heavily, it'll give you great throughput for a little while, and then it'll take a coffee break, which is a disaster. Nobody can actually run an application on a server that every now and then just stops doing any work for you. So it's better performance, um, in both in terms of throughput and in terms of consistency. And yeah, you can just stop your existing server. You, you can actually, instead of going through an upgrade process, you can just move aside the MySQL D binary and replace it. And it's that drop-in compatible. And just start up the uh, the new MySQL D binary and you're back in business. No changes to file formats or anything like that. Everything. But what about the um, the extra DB talking to the inner DB, that engine? I mean, that's all, that just works with the one switch over. Is that right? Yeah, because extra DB is really just a name change. It's InnoDB. It's InnoDB plus some enhancements. But the enhancements don't change how InnoDB reads and writes its data. They don't change how it processes queries or anything like that. They so just change, change the files. Right. Yeah. All we're trying to do is really minimally intrusive changes that solve critical performance problems or, or some, in some cases, functionality problems. So we definitely go after the low-hanging fruit, and we stick as close to the official version of MySQL as we possibly can. It's a lot of work to maintain anything that's different at all, and it's regarded as risky by end users. So we, we try and stay as close to Oracle as possible. So... Um, you you know you brought up the talk, topic earlier of a, a full text search. Now, in, is this new version uh, of the current version of Percona Server? Does it handle um, full text search, or do you need to use a, an external um, full text uh, search uh, library li or engine? I guess like Sphinx or Solar. Percona Server doesn't have full text search capabilities other than uh, the built in my ISM. You can also get from MySQL. We haven't touched that. What's coming up in a new release is in the unreleased MySQL 5.6. 5.5 is currently GA. 5.6 is in what they call development milestone releases. And what that means is that every now and then they take some of the work they've done and compile it all up and put it on labs.mysql.com for you to download. And it, what's coming in the next GA version of MySQL, which should be probably, I, I'd guess, out this year sometime. I don't have any inside knowledge about that, but just kind of looking at the historical release cycle, it looks like it probably will be. And in 5.6 version, they've added full-text search capabilities to InnoDB. 
Now, when we start building Percona Server off of MySQL 5.6 after it's released, then Percona Server will inherit all of the new goodies that Oracle has built into MySQL 5.6. So at that point, you know, Percona Server 5.6 will have full text search in InnoDB as well. It, but on your on on the Percona site, you talk about there's a section that talks about Sphinx um, and how there is a sort of a native MySQL um, protocol that allows you interface with the Sphinx engine. It, it seems like that's what you would recommend um, for full text search. Could you talk a little bit about Sphinx? Sphinx is great. Sphinx is an external database server, really. It's not a completely full featured database server. It's definitely angled towards high performance full text searching the kind of thing that you would get from a search engine like Google, for example. Uh, but Sphinx is an external, um, an external server that runs separately from MySQL. And what you can do is you can talk MySQL to it in two different ways, sort of like talk dirty to it. You can, you can talk to it through MySQL by installing the, the Sphinx storage engine into MySQL. And that takes your, your uh, storage engine, um, so, so let me back up for just a second and explain what a storage engine is in case that's not clear to folks if, if they're not in the MySQL world. So inside of MySQL, there's this division of duties between the server that does things like processing queries and the storage engine that does things like storing indexes and committing transactions and so forth. So there's an upper and a lower level. And the storage engines have an API that the server talks to them through. And it's all row-oriented. It's like place a cursor at the beginning of this index. Okay, read the first row from the index. Okay, read the next one. It's all of those kind of low-level operations through this API that the storage engine handles. And you can build your own and you can plug them right in. And there's a Sphinx storage engine that plugs right in and accepts these things like insert a row, update a row, you know, fetch a row, all of those kinds of things from the upper levels of the server that's executing the SQL. And what it does then is it translates it into Sphinx's protocol and sends it over the over the network to the Sphinx server that's running somewhere. It doesn't have to be on the same machine. It could be elsewhere. And Sphinx processes the query there, returns the results, and then the storage engine returns the results back to the server, and the server returns them back to whoever issued the SQL query. So it's kind of a, a little bit roundabout, but it's, it's not as roundabout as it sounds, actually. Um, and it works quite well. So you can connect up to MySQL and start selecting from a Sphinx table. And what it's actually doing is, is sending your queries in a different form over the wire to the Sphinx server where they're executing, and then the results are coming back. And in this case, MySQL is really kind of acting as a proxy between you and Sphinx. The other right, thing it, you can do is... Mm -hmm. so, so you can, but you can interface through your native SQL queries, so you don't have to do any, any additional work like outside of SQL to, to do what you need to do. Yeah, and it, one of the nice characteristics of that, that there's lots of nice characteristics, is there's a single place to connect to and a single language to talk and a single kind of set of things for developers to think about. And it may make things simpler for administrators as well, depending on how it's architected. But it's, a, it's really nice to be able to talk to a server and get everything you need from it rather than going, oh, okay, this one's a full text one. I'll have to go somewhere else for that. And people are kind of used to that because, you know, you're stereotypically talking to MySQL for queries and then you're talking to Memcached for caching. And so people don't aren't necessarily averse to having multiple servers that their application communicates with. But if you can have just one, it's a nicety. And if you don't have to teach somebody a new language and new concepts of how to work with a full text 
search engine. It's nice, you know, if you can just interface with it through SQL. Sphinx has a couple of other nice uh, features as well. It does have its own native protocol, and it has libraries for that that you can communicate with it from pretty much every language, like PHP, of course. But it also understands the MySQL protocol. So you can make a MySQL connection to Sphinx directly without going into a MySQL server because it understands the, the uh, TCP IP protocol that MySQL uses. So you can connect right up to it from the, the MySQL command line or from any of your MySQL connectors in any programming language and start issuing queries. It's very cool. Wow. So I, it sounds like that is the best option. A project we're working on is going to require a, a high-quality search engine. And I really wasn't looking forward to having my, my create like my ISAM sort of tech search tables. I mean, the, the plan was before, at least the first step was like, okay, you have your NODB tables for your, your normal data, and then you'd have to have a duplicate copy of that data, especially if you're searching across multiple tables, and shoving it into... Um, you know, you're my ICM search table, but now we can just go ahead and just, you know, set those tables up and uh, we just do the operation through Sphinx, right? I mean, so is it like you just have, you have a duplicate copy of your data both in, into Sphinx storage in as well as into your normal um, tables? Yeah, you would have duplication of data. Sphinx doesn't actually store the data. It only stores an index over the data. And when you query it, it returns you an identifier. So you have to, let's say you have a document about, you know, um, you've got Justin and Jason in some document about them. And uh, you give it an identifier of one, two, three. Now what you do is you tell Sphinx to index that and you tell it, oh, by the way, and this is the identifier here. And Sphinx goes, one, two, three, got it. So Sphinx now builds an index over that. And that index is going to contain, it's going to contain words like Justin and Jason, but it's not going to contain the full text of, of the document. The full okay. text is still stored in the original location. And now when you connect to Sphinx and you go, give me all of the matches for Justin and, and Jason, it sends you back one, two, three. Is it easy enough to apply different weights within the sections of the document? So, for example, the title weights higher than the body. Yeah, yeah. It's very, it's very easy to do that. It's very flexible. There's a, a whole query language that goes along with it. And you can um, you can do a whole bunch of different things with it. Now, what about if you're storing data uh, in, as JSON? So, for instance, in, in one of our tables, one of our fields is is, is a is sort of a, I guess it's like a JSON document. It was just too much. It was sort of atomic in the sense that it wasn't it didn't need to be relational, and it was and it was hierarchical. And so so we decided let's just make this a JSON you know document. I guess can that work well with Sphinx? I mean, is that something that you it is easy to to sort of I don't know, converse between the two, get it to work that way? Should be. I'll be frank with you. I'm not sure whether JSON understands how to parse. Uh, sorry, whether Sphinx understands how to parse JSON. Mm -hmm. It understands how to parse XML and HTML and plain text and, on a whole, and it understands how to connect to MySQL and, and, and retrieve data from MySQL and a whole bunch of other different things. So if JSON's not there, it shouldn't be hard. Um, but I'm actually not sure whether it is or not. This is the get free Pocona Consulting from the sh from uh, Baron Schwartz part of the show, <laughs> right? Scamming yeah, free you, you consulting. You gave me your credit card, so <laughs> <laughs> oh dope. <laughs> so, yeah, so okay, uh, go on, Justin. I know you have a few questions. Yeah, well, I was just thinking about the the Pocona, the the business, and if I was to describe it to I don't know one of my non technical friends, I could say something like insane. Well, <laughs> 
I could say something like, well, there's this software called MySQL and MySQL is completely free in that anyone can get it for free and they make money somehow. I'm not entirely sure. And then this other company called Pocona recompile that same free software in a different kind of a way and you can get that for free too and they make money somehow and I'm not quite sure how. Mm-hmm. So what? <laughs> how does that all work? Yeah, so the way I'll, I'll start with where you started at MySQL, which is now Oracle, just a, a fully owned subsidiary of Oracle. The way they make money is by convincing people that their MySQL deployment is important. And if it's important, then you need support. If it's important and you run into a bug, then you need somebody to be able to fix that bug for you. And you can certainly fix it yourself. If you've got the coding Kung Fu, if you understand the internals of the server, um, it's open source. So there's nobody stopping you from fixing it in theory. In practice, that's not the way things actually work. (laughs) The fixing bugs inside of the MySQL server is a specialized thing and requires a lot of knowledge and skill and experience. And uh, so people will pay for a support contract that allows them to get their bugs fixed. And it also allows them to do things like call up with questions. This SQL's not returning the re- the result that I want. How can I how can I write this query? And you know my replication is broken, or heck, I don't even have replication, and I want replication. How do I do that? And um, so it it becomes a whole support organization, becomes services around it. And Oracle also, in addition to the open source MySQL database server, they sell as part of their um, enter- MySQL enterprise uh, package. It also includes non-free software. It includes the MySQL enterprise monitor and um, a, a, a version of the MySQL Workbench utility that has additional features and a whole number of other things. And it, in some cases, if you actually want to run your software and uh, make money off of it and, and uh, be as efficient as possible, it makes a lot of sense to, to go ahead and pay for it. Uh, but you can, you know, there's a free on-ramp. You can try it for free and nobody's... Is, uh, uh, nobody's forcing you to pay. And Percona simply offers many of the same services. Um, we're an alternative provider. Some people find us friendlier to work with because we're a small company. And, uh, you know, Oracle's legal staff is probably 10 times the size of entire Percona. So, you know, people like working with us. They like our instant accessibility. We also have nice, friendly policies with regard to how we bill people. For example, you can get small amounts of help. And uh, we've proven our expertise by improving the MySQL server. It, our version of the server is actually faster and more consistent than Oracle's. So people see that as a verification of our credibility. Anybody can say, oh, we're experts. And that's kind of what everybody does, right? You hang up a shingle in any industry and you say, I'm expert in name the industry. But when you're producing a database server that outstrips in performance and features and functionality and instrumentation, the official version, uh, you know, people take you seriously. And it, to be fair, we actually work in pretty different universes. People come to us for things that they don't really care to come to, to Oracle for. And uh, we also have a different release model. So Oracle certainly has the resources and the know-how to release a higher performance database than we do. Um, but they are their customers aren't necessarily always interested in that. And they're not always interested in a, a database server that evolves agilely. They're not interested in something that has bug fixes and, and new features and functionality on a fairly regular basis. 
They might be large enterprises that are looking for something much more stable and slow moving. And they want kind of the traditional enterprise um, comforting assurances of having a really long release cycle with a well-understood patch model and hot bug fixes and those kinds of things. So I think we really move in different spheres. And that's why people come to us that don't go to Oracle and vice versa. There are, there are companies that definitely want to work with Oracle because they're a giant company. You know, they're, they're a safe company. They're well-established and they know what the heck they're doing and they do a good job at it. So I, I noticed that you have different types of sort of consulting arrangements. You have like longer term um, consulting arrange, uh, contracts. You do bulk hours, but you also do sort of the micro consulting, which is 15 minute increments. How, how much do you charge and how does that work? Like what is the minimum amount? I mean, can someone call you for 15 minutes or is like a minimum of an hour and then it's 15 increments after that or, or what? It's just 15 minutes. Okay. And, and okay. the rack rate is $300 an hour and the salespeople will negotiate with you on that. These okay. days, the consulting, we're, we're starting to make more of a division between consulting and support. Where okay. consulting is more project-based work and support is more 15 minutes of fix my replication or whatever. Right. And the, the, the contracts that we offer to people or that we suggest to people based on the type of work and, and help that they anticipate needing, try to match those needs. So we try, if somebody needs project-based work, we try and make the contract match that need. If somebody is just going to need to help with rewriting a query every now and then or fixing replication or whatever it is, um, we try and make the contract match that need. If somebody wants bug fixes, again, you know, we, we have contracts that are specifically tailored towards that. Or, or if somebody wants uh, large-scale engineering work in the server to, to make a custom version of the server for them. I, I can't mention names, but we have some very, very large companies that engage us on a continual basis now, can someone contact? Can, can, oh, I'm sorry, we lost you there for a second. Um, is it possible for someone to say hire you specifically? Say, I want, I want to talk to Baron specifically for my 15 minute, 15 minute increments, or is there a standard, you know, uh, pool of uh, of consultant support experts that, that that work with customers? We have a couple of people who are assigning the most appropriate person based on the customer's needs. And Peter Vendim and I are on a premium basis, so we're available, but we're limiting ourselves because we're trying to spend a lot of time coaching other people and teaching what we know. And in my case particularly, I'm developing a lot of tools and a lot of techniques to uh, make things more efficient. For example, um, we sell fixed price support contracts. So it's, it's all you can eat, you know, unlimited incidents. So if you think about the business model behind that, um, you can get as much, all, all you can eat help for your uh, server or servers for an entire year. It behooves us to be as efficient as possible to deliver that service. And so I spend a lot of time making more efficient tools and techniques so that we can do that in less time and lower the cost to ourselves. Uh, you know, you I see, want us to be able to. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so you say you charge a, a premium rate. Uh, is. Uh, what, what, what Do you have a standard rate that you guys charge if someone wanted to, say, talk to you for a couple hours about their large-scale MySQL um, rollout that they're, that they're planning? I let the, the salespeople do all of that now. I let them okay. handle all of the, the price negotiation. And the standard sort of the, the rate that's listed on the website is $300 an hour. That's kind of the starting point. And there's discounts from that for various types of bulk purchases. And there's 
premium on top of that for various types of services like data recovery is a premium because it's almost always a flaming emergency in the middle of the night on Sunday. (laughs) And, uh, um, you know, getting me or Peter over Redeem on site is also can be a premium thing. So, but I let the sales folks handle that. Sometimes it also varies depending on whether, you know, this is a, a really long established customer or whether it's physically close to one of us or something like that. You know, we don't just try and get the money, the maximum money that we can out of people, but we try and do something that makes sense based on the, the, um, the value to both of the companies. Jason, I have a question. Um, it's funny, I keep on saying Jason and I have a question, but I'm actually asking the question to Barrel. Okay. <laughs> you're, telling, the you're essentially telling me to shut up. It's kind of like this a is, mutex. Yeah. You're like, I am locking this process so I can actually talk. Go ahead. That, that is the problem yeah. of having two interviews. So what I'm wondering is, how does a 60-person virtual company work logistically? It's not, uh, it's not straightforward like it is in, a, in an office where everybody sees each other. But in some ways, it's actually cleaner and more straightforward. The former CEO of MySQL, Martin Mikos, gave a talk at Stanford not too long ago. That's a great watch if anybody wants to, to, to watch a video of him. He talks for, I don't know, 20 minutes, maybe something like that, about how to operate a virtual company. And it reflects many of our experiences as well. I mentioned this not because I'm trying to avoid answering the question, but just because I thought the uh, listeners to this show might be interested in that as well. So um, everybody works out of their home. In my case, I work out of a room in my basement and I have a view out over the valley onto the hills. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I interact with everybody through email and Skype and IRC and phone calls and um, occasional in-person meetings. Um, I, we have a, an annual company meeting that's actually coming up next week where everybody comes together with the exception of there's usually a couple of people who can't make it for one reason or another. But we typically try and get everybody together once a year. And uh, we also do smaller gatherings in between. And uh, we try and make sure that that's friendly uh, for family members, including children and, and significant others to come to. So those, those are really nice chances to get to know people and to get to know uh, you know, not just what they're like to work with technically, but as people and as families gathering together. So that helps a lot. Um, Structurally, the way that we're organized, it doesn't look terribly different from a a bricks and mortar company that all works in the same office building together. We have uh, a hierarchy org chart, just like anybody. We have the CEO at the top and the executive group right underneath. And we've got a few uh, departments such as sales and marketing and administration um, consulting. And, uh, we've got line managers in certain cases in those areas. Um, in some cases, people report directly to the executives with no other middle management. In some cases, we've got enough of a team, for example, in the consulting team, uh, that there's a couple of people who are helping to manage there. How, how big could a virtual company get in your opinion? Could it be a thousand employees? I'm not sure whether it could be a thousand employees. I don't think that there's any constraint on a virtual company that there isn't also on a a company that's in an office together. One of the interesting things that I've been kind of watching is um, if you've read Malcolm Gladwell's books, there's one called The Tipping Point. I believe it's The Tipping Point where he talks about sort of the maximum size that a group of people can have before there become too many people to really know each other and it subdivides whether you like it or not. It's kind of like when you're at a party 
and there's three people talking together and a, a fourth person walks up and kind of stands there and people shift aside a little bit and make the circle a little bigger and then five people, six people. But then suddenly three of those people will start talking to each other and form their own group. And there's a theory among sociologists that 150 is kind of the, the limit for a company to grow to before something like that happens. Is that like the Dunbar number or something? That is could that? be. I don't, like I don't It's like 100. Something. Like you can't know more than 100 or 150 people or something. I think it's the Dunbar number. I maybe got that wrong, but yeah. So I don't see any, you know, we're, uh, uh, companies always go through phases in their growth. And there are studies, for example, from the Harvard Business Review that show how those kinds of things typically happen. But to be frank with you, I haven't grown a company through any of those phases other than where Percona has gotten to today. So when I arrived at Percona, um, there were actually about 35 people in the company, but a whole number of those split off and formed another company afterwards. It was really two companies in one, and we, we made the separation between them. So what was left after that was a fairly small consulting company and some administrative staff. And we've grown from there up to our current size of around 60. And we're, you know, we're going through the phases of growth like you would typically see. I mean, there's the desperate entrepreneurial first days. And then there's the, you've got a number of people who are kind of working together and all doing what looks best to them. And now we've got a little bit more structure coming into the organization. We're starting to think more about policies and about consistency and, um, well, actually, we've been thinking about those things for a long time, um, but we're starting to get those things out of people's heads and onto some kind of a um, shared knowledge. So right. these are phases in the growth of a company's, and, um, you know, that's, that's where we are. I don't know what will happen being a virtual company beyond this, but MySQL was fully virtual except for, I think, um, there might have been a dozen or so people who were in corporate headquarters, but they had grown up to around 500, if I recall correctly. I'd like to uh, jump back on the technical side for a minute and ask you about uh, NoSQL. That's, you know, obviously been a big source of controversy between uh, relational databases and the things like Couch and Mongo and Cassandra and everything. What are your thoughts on when and where it makes sense? And, and, uh, and also, like, what are any misconceptions that you think might be um, grabbing hold and people are spending too much time thinking about? Well, there's a lot of different viewpoints swirling around, and depending on who you talk to, I mean, if you talk to an excited developer who's learned a new technology and found that it's really doing good things for them, um, that's one point of view. And uh, then you've got the grouchy old timers who are saying, oh, this is all kind of the stuff that we used to deal with before we had relational. It was hell back then, and it's going to be hell again. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a whole gamut of, of opinions in between, right? So I think it depends on what you're trying to do. And we can say a bunch of um, sort of self-obvious things like choose the right tool for the job. But in general, I like that there's more than one way to access data. And there's always going to be more than one way to access data. I just don't want there to be 50. Right. I want the, I want, the relational model is proven. It's absolutely valuable, and I don't think it'll ever go away. Something new may come along. Like, I, I was talking to my wife the other day about this. We may end up with something coming out of, let's say, quantum computing 
that creates an entirely new mathematical paradigm and a new data access model can be based on that because the relational model is based on set theory and on and on some pretty deep mathematics actually um interestingly though it can also all be based on key value access and so the relational model can be seen in some ways as a subset or a, a superset of other ways of accessing data and in fact a lot of the most uh, interesting relational implementations especially new ones are built on top of key value so it's not as though they have to be mutually exclusive one of the things that i think has come about recently that is um a relative departure from this i'm not going to say it's a new thing but a departure from this is the document oriented store and so we've got couchdb and mongo and a number of others and they're beautiful and they're elegant and i really like them <laughs> i kind of wish that i that i were a developer solely so that i could uh, you know use these things because they make a lot of sense in in particular areas but i what what i'm hesitating about is that we don't have a deep shared understanding and we don't have a deep theoretical background and and uh, foundation for these things so uh, for example there is no um there's no deep mathematical uh research and body of knowledge about document oriented databases as there is with relational databases and i think what's going to happen over time is that that will develop and we'll start to see things instead of there being 50 or 80 or 100 different databases that only have in common that they're not sql i think we'll start to see things coalesce a little bit more right right um justin do you have any other questions cuz i'm i'm i think i've asked everything i had written down and i don't want to keep um bearing any longer than we have to cuz i know he's got a lot of a lot of stuff on his plate i no i'm i'm good i mean i think this has been a fantastic uh interview um a lot of great stuff come out Yeah, and oh, actually, you know what? I have one last question, actually, if you don't mind. I think about it. I'm sorry. I just noticed this on my list. Okay. Uh, I guess the other uh, big kind of um, big fork in, the, in, the My, in MySQL is uh, MariahDB, and I, and I guess and there's also Drizzle. Could you maybe just give us a real quick rundown of what the, what the strain, or, I don't know, the, the comparisons between the two? Like, where does one excel and the other, you know, fall short, or how are they the same and different? It's a great question. And I think it's the the most interesting way to talk about this is to look at the origins of the project, not to drag you through the mud of history, but mm-hmm. I think it's it's uh, very interesting to realize kind of the motivations for them. So Drizzle came out of a desire to make MySQL better for developers. Drizzle started before the other forks did masomenos. I mean, it depends on how you look at it. But um Brian Aker, the then director of architecture, for MySQL when when MySQL is owned by Sun Microsystems started Drizzle as an attempt to get rid of some of the historical nastiness and the old code and the legacy you know the handcuffs that came with having a long history of, of evolution through the product and it was definitely evolution right not not necessarily intelligent design <laughs> right. that's the way software always works and right. um what came out of that was a clean much stripped down database server it doesn't have gotchas it doesn't have a lot of um surprises but on the other hand it's very much geared towards developers it's it's really nice to develop the code that's written in drizzle because it's a joy to work with but from the user point of view there's not a compelling story there yet and we haven't seen a lot of production deployments of it i think the uh, the story for 
that I would tell about Drizzle is that if you're considering a new application and you don't mind starting from from scratch and and learning a new set of administrative skills and those kinds of things, Drizzle is something to consider, but it's not something that you would move an existing deployment to because it's not compatible with MySQL even. They just went ahead and threw off all the shackles and said, we're going to start over. The other two um, major ones, there, there have been a handful. Uh, the ones that are still kind of going concerns today are Percona Server and MariaDB. Uh-huh. And um, Percona Server grew out of, as I described before, customer needs and what we saw as opportunities to build something of high value with very low risk and with minimal um, disruptiveness to the server. So it's, it's the low-hanging fruit in three areas, in performance, in uh, transparency or instrumentation so you can measure what the server is doing, and in operational capabilities so that you have more flexibility to do things like schema changes and restarts without disrupting your, your uh, application's operation so much. So the, the motivation there is make MySQL better for real users who are running into serious problems right now, and they, there's no other way that they can get it fixed. They can't wait for the next release cycle of MySQL. They have to have a fix now. Um, and at the same time, our customers, we have a lot of very large enterprise customers, you know, companies like Alcatel, Lucent, and the BBC. They're very conservative, and so they don't want changes that do not provide a compelling benefit for them. So we don't include a lot of things that might be nice simply because we don't want people to have to have that many questions about what kind of changes have been made to the server. And MariaDB was formed um, by uh, Monty, the original creator of MySQL, who left when Sun owned MySQL. He left over differences uh, in management, essentially, and dissatisfaction with how rapidly the development of the server was progressing. And he said, I want uh, a database server that is sort of democratic. And it, I'm not going to quote Monty exactly here, but hopefully the gist will be correct. Um, you can look on montysays.blogspot.com for the exact, you know, he's, he's written down his reasons in, in several blog posts that are very nice to read and very compelling principles and values are. His, his, uh, I'm going to paraphrase him as saying that he wanted a database server that responded to users' needs um, but that so that it was community developed because there was really a kind of a wall between the community and the official developers of MySQL within Sun Microsystems. Mm-hmm. So he wanted something that accepted external contributions and that moved the the evolution of the database server forward very dramatically. So he wanted to really fix problems rapidly. He wanted to add a lot of new features. He wanted to fix some long-standing things like um, complaints about the way that subqueries execute, those kinds of things. And um, MariaDB today is a much different database server. So it's got a lot of changes from MySQL. And this can be seen as either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your point of view. It's a good thing if you need those changes. It's a good thing if you want your subqueries to execute differently, for example. It's... uh, I shouldn't have said a bad thing, but um, uh, it's not necessarily an attractive thing if you're very risk-averse and you have questions about uh, how much how much uh, risk is there in making a change to a database server that's so different. So MySQL um, has all of these different areas in the server, and some of them we have not touched in Percona Server. We 
typically don't get into, for example, the part of the code that optimizes queries and makes them execute most efficiently. It might sound like kind of a weird thing to say because Percona Server is a higher performance version of MySQL, but the, the main performance gains were to be found in the underlying NODB storage engine. So we haven't really messed with the way that MySQL parses and optimizes and executes queries. Um, we're leaving that to Oracle to do. MariaDB went boldly into there and ripped out a bunch of the optimizer things and rearranged a bunch of stuff and added a bunch of new features. They also went into the replication code. And uh, that's another place where we don't want to touch a whole lot in Percona Server because replication is not the easiest code to uh, change without introducing bugs. And in fact, even like software engineers at Google have made some changes to replication that have <laughs> caused bugs. <laughs> so it's certainly non-trivial to um, make changes to that portion of the server. So right, I would characterize right. them very briefly again as Drizzle is oriented towards developers and a joyous, clean developer experience, but not so much towards users. MariaDB is for people who want a community-developed participatory experience and lots and lots of new features. And Percona Server is for people who would really rather stick with Oracle's version of MySQL, but for some reason they can't. And so it's, um, uh, it's the next, it's the closest alternative that has a lot of performance and functionality improvements without a lot of the changes. Actually, since we're on this subject, there's one quick question I'd like to ask. What's your take on purely cloud-based um, MySQL? Okay. Uh, basically, people who are offering MySQL via the cloud. Via the cloud. Yep. So there are two kind of ways that I think it makes sense to divide things into. One is infrastructure as a service where you um, create your, your cloud machine and then you install MySQL on it. The other is where MySQL itself is installed as a service and you access a something that it either is or looks like MySQL, but it's um, a cloud resource. So it, let's be honest and say that Amazon is the cloud. <laughs> I know there are lots of others, like there's the Rackspace cloud and there's the joint cloud and there's, you know, lots and lots of, there's Voxel has a large cloud, uh, but Amazon obviously is the 800 pound gorilla in this area. And so if you're looking at running MySQL in, in an Amazon uh, EC2 instance, it doesn't look a lot different than running it on your own server with a few, uh, a few important characteristics that are different. One is that you can't get as many or as fast CPUs. Another is that memory is limited. So the largest instances right now are 68.4 gigabytes. And the final and probably the most important is that the I.O. capacity is limited both in throughput and uh, in bandwidth. And that turns out to be um, a combination of things that makes MySQL run fairly well if your data set fits in memory. If your data set doesn't fit in memory or if you require too much concurrency, that's that's kind of another angle on it that doesn't necessarily always work well, then MySQL starts to have problems on uh, EC2 machines. And this is both with or without EBS block storage. There's only so large that you can really go with it. So what it ends up meaning is that you have to shard sooner. Whereas on uh, physical hardware, uh, bespoke hardware in your own data center, you can scale MySQL up very far these days. It used to be that MySQL would kind of fall over on anything over a handful of CPU cores, and it didn't scale to large amounts of memory, and it couldn't use really fast I.O. These days, that's not really true. Uh, commodity servers can have half a terabyte or a terabyte of memory in them, so that's damn big. And they can have 
I've seen recently 80 CPU cores in production. That's also damn big, and those are fast cores. Um, I'm sorry, that's not cores, but that's the the number of CPUs that are reported to the operating system ver- via hyperthreading and all of those kinds of things. And uh, with solid state drives, in particular PCIe drives, you can have an enormous amount of of I/O power. Actually, in this area, MySQL still still cannot use all of the power that's available to it with Fusion I/O and Virident devices. Um, you really to to exercise the full power of those. Storage devices, you have to actually run multiple instances on a single server. So my point is that you can actually scale MySQL up very, very far without having to shard. And 37 Signals is famous for doing this, but there are lots of other examples as well. Um, Whereas if you go into the cloud with MySQL, you have to shard, unless you have a pretty small application. So if that's an architectural uh, decision that you're comfortable making, and that's the direction that you think you're going to go eventually, then it absolutely makes sense. The other thing is that the database center is not the king. It's not the center of the universe. Sometimes applications move to the cloud because of benefits to everything else, and it may not be totally beneficial to the database server. There may be some pain with resource constraints and things like that. But the database server has to go because everything else went. And overall, it's a win, even though it looks bad to the database administrator. So, you know, lots of different angles to look at this. We have lots and lots of customers who are running in the cloud, and we've helped scale some of the biggest deployments out there, um, both in or out of the cloud. And there are lots of cases where it makes a lot of sense, and there are also times when we've moved people out of the cloud. And I can particularly mention, for example, um, mobile application. Obviously, everything mobile is about the cloud to begin with, right? So mobile is sort of cloud native. And... um, Another would be Facebook or, or other social networking uh, types of applications. Um, Facebook apps in particular or, or games in particular because they're typically, you just never know what's going to go viral. And that has two dimensions. One is that you don't know whether you should invest in it until you play with it for a little while. If it takes off, then you can either scale it in the cloud or take it out of the cloud. But if it doesn't, you can just shut down the machines and you you didn't have any upfront capital expense. You only had a little bit of operating expenses. And that's a tremendously beneficial um, business model for folks who are throwing a lot of things at the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, The other is uh, sometimes you need to scale things in the cloud. Um, You can do that by acquiring hardware quite rapidly, assuming that your provider isn't oversubscribed, which is bound to happen someday. But so far, there don't seem to be problems with that. So if your application does go viral, uh, so I've seen applications grow faster than, uh, than traditional data center providers can actually acquire and rack machines. And uh, those kinds of things, I've seen the same kinds of growth in the cloud, and Amazon was able to keep up with it. So those, those kinds of things make sense when you're using infrastructure as a service. The other um, broad category that I mentioned is sometimes called platform as a service or database as a service. And that's where you are renting something that is or looks like MySQL, but you're not actually renting the resources that it run on. You're not renting a, a machine and installing MySQL. You're just, you just get access to something that you can talk MySQL to. And Amazon provides that, of course, with the RDS, Relational Database Service. That's really, um, it's basically a managed MySQL on EC2 plus EBS. And I don't have any inside knowledge about that, but it's, it seems to be pretty commonly known around the, the internet. 
And the, the advantage that you would get there is if you don't want to handle all of your own database administration, they've actually locked the server down just a little bit so that you don't have so many guns pointing at your foot. And they handle things like replication and backups. And uh, I think that's a pretty compelling business case for some people who don't have or don't want the staff to manage and, and do database administration kinds of tasks. There are some downsides, such as you might not be able to troubleshoot some problems, and I've seen that in several cases where you really need access to the underlying hardware to understand what's going on, and, and you don't get that. You only get a, a MySQL login. There's also a handful of uh, providers who are giving you something that looks like MySQL but isn't really or is a storage engine to MySQL. And I haven't seen anybody using them in production, but the, the one that comes to mind first is Zeround. There's also people who are running sort of a proxy service and categories that I'd mentioned there would be ScaleArc and ScaleDB, uh, DB Shards. Um, I might be missing some others, but there's a handful of, of providers in that category as well where you connect to something that that is a middleman between you and the ultimate MySQL server somewhere. So I, I have, I, I, we said we were going to end the show, but I have another question. You've, you've uh, uh, texted us to say that we can go on longer. So I'll ask yep. this while I've got Absolutely. you online. So I have a web, uh, I, I have a web app, um, my um, SaaS business called plugio.com. And that is a, a Twitter client, somewhat like Hootsuite, where I have customers who can access Twitter and schedule tweets and do that type of uh, marketing um, via Twitter. And also Facebook. Now, each well, what I'm wondering is, I, I'm going to need to start thinking about scaling soon. So I just thought you, it might be interesting to quickly brainstorm this use case. So with um, with Plugio, each client is basically th th there's no shared data between any of the clients. So should I even bother thinking about scaling at all? Should I just basically just do multiple small servers and then just redirect each client to the servers? Or do you think that there's any benefit? In starting to think about scaling and having multiple cloud instance servers sharing one database, there are two things that make scaling hard in general, and this is kind of comes out of scaling theory. One of them is when things get serialized, when some process says, "Oh, you guys can't work in parallel. Hang on, we've got a single bottleneck before you can all go on and work in parallel." And the other scaling bottleneck is crosstalk between things, and these show up when you're trying to scale your database server very clearly. Um, so the, the magic recipe to scalability, people talk so much about this, but it really comes down to um, avoid serialization and avoid crosstalk. Uh, there's a little bit more to it than that. You know, obviously lots of nuance or people wouldn't spend so much time talking about it. But when you have data that is completely uh, siloable, completely partitionable, as you've just described, it's a natural fit for something like sharding. Now, I would ask whether you should consider co-locating some of those shards to uh, consolidate resources. You know, maybe you don't have a database server per shard, per, uh, per client. Um, maybe you have them sharing um, and you can move them around to load balance them as you need to. That's a pretty common thing to do. But it sounds to me like you've kind of got a dream scenario going there. I, I would caution you, though, um, look ahead just a little bit. I don't know whether you're going to need the kind of analytics that would need to do some sort of cross-shard query. And that's typically where people find things to be painful. If it's only batch jobs, things like, you know, I don't know, doing invoicing or um, something like that, some kind of reporting or something, um, then it's not painful. You can usually write some custom code to do that. Um, 
But if it's something that needs to happen in real time, then it becomes a scalability bottleneck. So you so when you say sharding, are you, do you mean like something like all customers zero through a hundred thousand talk to server A, and all all customers hundred one thousand to two hundred thousand talk to server B? Is yeah, that that's a typical way that people will do that. If you add sharding after the fact and you have a large existing data set, people will usually do something that doesn't require disruptive changes to their application. And it's always a trade-off and you go, wow, if I had done this from the beginning, I probably would have done it a little bit differently. If you're building into this from from the beginning, um, it makes a lot of sense to do what I call directory-based sharding, where you simply have a lookup somewhere and you probably have a, a fast cache in front of it. And that maps... Um, your unit of sharding or, or your sharding key, such as the client identifier, it maps it to the physical database server and, and or maybe the schema where that data lives. Hmm. Right. I well, I'd, I'd like to play the one more question game too. <laughs> <laughs> one last question. Um, I, I forgot to ask you about uh, Postgres because I, you know, there's always a big controversy between MySQL and Postgres, and there's always been the sense that Postgres is more feature-rich and real database, you know, experts use Postgres, but then MySQL is a little more accessible and more, maybe more understood. But I wonder if some of the things that people claim are things that are historical, that they may have been true in 2005 or something, but not in 2012. So if you could maybe just give us a little sense about what's, what's the status now. Uh, what, are, what are the pros and cons of the two servers? Yeah, old myths die hard. Um, myths such as my ISM is faster than InnoDB, or MySQL doesn't have transactions, or the relational model doesn't scale, or, you know, all of these kinds of things. Um, we figure out the truth, but it doesn't really penetrate everywhere uh, for sometimes a very long time. Um, the MySQL versus Postgres is sort of like, uh, is a Lamborghini better than a Ferrari? <laughs> I mean, they're both fantastic pieces of software. And there are zealots on both sides. Um, I, I would also argue that there are people who kind of have a chip on their shoulder on both sides and, and get really offended on both sides. I stand, I believe, quite comfortably with a foot in each camp. I'll be frank with you and tell you that I am not an expert in Postgres administration day to day because I don't run Postgres applications, but I know a decent amount about Postgres. Um, and I speak often at Postgres conferences and have lots and lots of friends in the Postgres community, including some of the core committers. And we talk intelligently about things like the database internals and you know what bottlenecks are and what kinds of solutions there might be to those things. I, I think that Postgres is a great piece of software, and it is more feature-rich. There's certainly no debate in my mind about that, um, and it's always been more feature-rich. Uh, it has also historically not had some of the gotchas, like letting invalid data into the database that MySQL has had, um, and you're just looking at some historical remnants there. But Postgres has historical remnants, too, and it has shortcomings, too. Um, or areas where it quite it doesn't quite have some of the features that people find useful in MySQL. And those typically aren't user-visible features, but they're more things like Postgres doesn't have index-only scans. Um, in some cases, historically, Postgres didn't have, let's say, built-in replication. And MySQL had built-in replication, which had problems and still has problems, I and mean, no technology is perfect. But it always became sort of a grass is greener on the other side kind of a thing. Uh, if you were a MySQL user, you would say, I can't even start to make sense out of the uh, situation, the story with, with Postgres replication, because 
there isn't any. There's instead there's like 15 add-ons that are external. And if you were in the Postgres camp, you would go, well, at least we don't have something crappy built in, right? So it was, you know, nobody was really seeing anybody's point of view. Well, recently Postgres has gotten built-in replication. Fantastic, and you know that is that's an amazing improvement in the database server. Um, and they've done a really good job with their replication, from as far as I know. Again, with the caveat that I haven't really digested it in production in a mission critical system for years. Um, and they've got index-only scans coming up in the next release. Fantastic. That is going to, you know, for such a long time, people said, we don't need index-only scans. They don't really make that much of a difference. And I was like, yeah, you do. It makes that much of a difference. You know, it is absolutely phenomenal the difference that it makes not to be doing random I.O. lookups and to, to only be doing a scan through an index. And when index-only scans hit production with the next GA release of Postgres, it's going to knock people's socks off. Um, but on the other hand, it, there's a lot of people who will try and compare performance between the two. And uh, if you get me started talking about benchmarks, you'll discover that I'm a real, I'm a benchmark zealot. Um, I, I have a colleague, Vadim, who is, in my estimation, one of the top benchmark experts in the world in any domain. And uh, when he runs a benchmark, he runs it scientifically and he presents the results so that anybody can can repeat his results and so that you can analyze. You don't get just a single number coming out the other end. You see things like distributions of response time. And uh, you learn a lot about the systems from the benchmarks. And I haven't seen anybody do benchmarks to that level of depth in Postgres. And I especially haven't seen a responsibly run benchmark that compares the two. So is one higher performance than the other? There is, uh, there's no answer to that at this point. I'd love for there to be an answer, um, but there isn't. Right, right. And, um, yeah, I guess we should let him go, huh, Justin? <laughs> I think so. He's been, he's been pretty helpful so far. Yeah, yeah, I can just go insulting. Come on, what's your next yeah. question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I was going to ask about SQL Server, but I don't know, maybe that's a whole nother, uh it is. Did you know that I, I started my database career in SQL Server? Yeah, I did. So I, I read this interview with you. Uh, I was done with you, um, and you talked about how you came out of C, uh, that was your background. You spent two or three years uh, working with SQL Server? Yeah, you and came the, the database administrator there taught me everything I still know. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, well, I guess I get to ask a covert question here. <laughs> so well, what are your thoughts now on, on SQL Server? Why would someone choose... SQL Server, if you weren't in a corporate environment that it's sort of like um, standardized on a Microsoft platform, is there any reason, um, legitimate reason, um, to, to pay the kind of money that it costs to, for, for a production-level SQL Server installation versus uh, you know, MySQL with Percona or even or Maria or whatever? You know, I don't know what the pricing is anymore, but it is a very good quality product. And if your corporate priority is we want a good quality product, go for it. Uh, if you if you would rather at Percona, we our, our philosophy is kind of we believe that most things in the world can be built with open source software. It may not be perfect, and it may not be the best way to do it, but you can do it. Now, in specific areas, there are. Uh, and good reasons to believe that open source is not always the best way to go. And I'll give you an example of ours, which is um, 
recent work that we've done with a database company called Clustrix. And they're building a massively scalable, uh, highly available clustered database system that um, speaks MySQL protocol natively. And it's a phenomenal piece of software, and they're phenomenal engineers. And if you're dealing with specific scalability problems in MySQL, you can do it with MySQL. Um, we've proven that. There are a lot, there's lots of public case studies to prove that it can be done. But might it be expensive and laborious, and might it be hard to hire or, or um, uh, you know, get the resources that you need to do that with MySQL? Yeah, it might be. And it might make more sense to just use Clustrix. <laughs> and there are specific cases where we've recommended that people evaluate Clustrix instead. And uh, so the same kind of a uh, thing applies, I think, when you're comparing open source software to anything closed source and expensive like Oracle Database or um, you know, some of the large analytics databases would be another good example. Right, right. All right, Justin, we really, really mean it this time, right? We're letting him go. <laughs> oh, right, just as, one more as long as you guys no, really, really mean it. <laughs> oh, it's, it's been a real pleasure having you on, Barry. I really yeah. appreciate you spending as much time as you have with us. Um, you know, we know, we know you're uh, busy. You guys have a lot going on, but it's been a real education and uh, a lot of fun talking to you about this stuff. Yeah, the same here. Thanks for having me on, guys. Well, uh, I guess that's a wrap. We're out. 